0: Welcome to The Happy Vagina, where we shame our thoughts and feelings around all things sex, sexual health, gender, and body judgment. We share honestly about our experiences, so you can do the same, leading us all to better health, better sex, and better lives. I'm Mika Simmons, and today, on The Happy Vagina, I am honoured to be speaking to Nicholas Pinnock, dancer, poet, mental health campaigner, and one of my favourite British actors, who starred in some of the nation's favourite TV shows, Top Boy, Marcella, and now temporarily, we hope, has flown the nest to film season two of ABC's For Life in New York. We hope he's coming back. Perhaps most importantly, Nicholas, you are my very dear friend. And it is because of you, your foresight and bravery, that we have expanded the Happy Vagina podcast to include men. We're going to talk more on that later. Before we get into some of the deeper stuff, we are going to have to start with the Happy Vagina quiz. It's just tradition. I don't know how you feel about quizzes.
1: I'm quite good at quizzes. Oh, I won the last. I won the last quiz that I was um, a part
0: of. Oh, Trusty. Okay, we're just going to talk-
1: <laughs>
0: five questions, true or false. Question one. Okay. Studies show that modern hunter-gatherer tribes operate on an egalitarian basis.
1: <sighs> I say that was true.
0: It's true. Early men and women were equal, say scientists. Our prehistoric. Yeah trade as spear-wielding savages but the earliest human societies are likely to have been founded on enlightened egalitarian principles
1: i can see that makes sense actually
0: i'd be quite interested to know how tribal divides worked within it because obviously before humans settled down men would belong to their tribe rather than to their family unit
1: and i think they were they might have been happier than we are now i don't
0: know i don't even know if happiness
1: Question.
0: yeah true good point anyway you've got that next question true or false in 2019 hundreds of ballet dancers flashed mob in times square in honor of princess charlotte
1: Ooh. i can imagine that to be true yeah!
0: it's such a trick question because i really thought you'd know the answer because it's about male dancers which obviously is part of your repertoire it is partly true
1: I remember hearing about that flash mob. I didn't know what it was about, but I remember seeing clips of it.
0: Oh, Nicholas, it was so amazing. Prince George, son of Kate and William, was mocked by a U.S.
1: Television. Oh, that's right. I remember that now. Yes, 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 yes. I do remember.
0: I don't know what she said and we won't mention who it was because it could have just been a mistake on her part. And we don't like hate on the happy vagina but essentially yeah. they, they made fun of him they basically made fun of him for doing ballet so hundreds of male dancers turned up and performed ballet in the middle of new york
1: that's right yes i remember that because so i remember thinking i would um love to have been a part of it
0: ballet your your dance
1: contemporary was my dance but i studied ballet for um pretty much seven years i was never good enough to be a, a a ballet. Dancer. I could have been good enough to be a ballet dancer, but my love wasn't ballet. Um, although I love watching it, I love doing it, but performing it, it wasn't as, um, it didn't excite me as much as contemporary dance did. So I, I didn't go down the ballet route and I kind of stuck to more the contemporary side of things, which you do need a good ballet core for, but you don't, um, I know some contemporary dancers that wouldn't, be able to join a ballet company because they're just not good enough, and I just wasn't good enough.
0: As far as I understand it, often a significant part of whether a woman is going to be or a young girl is going to become an exceptional ballerina is to do with her physique. So my question is whether or not it's the same for young boys or young men around around wanting to become a ballerina. Can it get in the way of, um, if a young man really wanted that as his future and he didn't have a yeah. physique? Would he be blocked from doing it
1: not as much as um for females no but i think there is a certain amount of um body shaming that goes on within the ballet world i I hate to say it um and a lot of it is about physique um i think it's changing now though um you know there's there's there have been body prejudice type situations going on with Lots of ballet companies across the world, if you're not a particular size, or you know, for for women, if you have too big of breasts, or if your bum is too big, and for men, if you know, you're not broad enough, or you're too broad, or you're too tall, or you know, just all these things. And it's kind of for me, dance is more about a feel. Um, I uh, now at almost 47, I am a I understand my body a lot more now than I did maybe 20 years ago. So I think I dance better. And I think that we've gotten into a, a world now where those kinds of things are being questioned. And those aspects of, of our society and entertainment and things, they're all being challenged. And you now have principled dancers that don't look what typical Principal dancers in some ballet companies normally have been, which have been, you know, very small and petite and a particular colour and a particular shape and all this sort of stuff. It's being challenged. I mean, you had Sylvie Guillem, who was, you know, almost six foot tall, which was she was tall for a, for a, a ballet dancer. And but she was amazing. So you couldn't deny her the chance to perform on stage in principal roles. You've got Misty Copeland who, for a, um, a black woman, it was, it was important for her to you know, play major classical roles that were never afforded to people outside of white society before. So it's being challenged and it really is changing and I'm really enjoying what's coming out of the dance world these days.
0: As excited as you are about what the future might hold for no longer being based on external appearances or devices, Anyway, you've got that question wrong, but I'm, it's been such an interesting chat. I'm going to give you half a question. Three. Wow, thank
1: you so much. You're
0: <laughs> so welcome. Uh, question three. Digital diagnosis transform psychiatry by mining your most intimate data for clues.
1: I want to say false because I want it to be false because I don't want to be... Um, Diagnosed by digital means, um, so because I want it to be false, I'm going to say false.
0: I'm with you, but it's
1: probably true.
0: True, it's controversial though, because in order for them to mine our most intimate data, we will be giving away our privacy. So on the one hand, there's an element of it that, it, uh, particularly around um, uh, disorders like autism, they will be able to tell. But 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 moving on into the more daily mental health issues they will be able to work it out via uh, digital data so that's the future that's it holds you got that question wrong but i believe that actually you would have got it right if you'd been grown up and gave me a straight answer so point.
1: yeah i i know i know it's right but i so want it to be false
0: question four men's libido starts to squeeze it men's libido starts decreasing as soon as they stop being a teenager
1: <laughs> oh dear um false
0: it's true
1: that's crazy well not in my case my libido increased when I got into my 20s wow. so I think that's probably I think that's probably for the average person I don't think that's for everybody because I'd like to believe that we're all individuals and um everybody's body responds differently to lots of different things. There may be a generic pool of people that fits in with which, which we call average. Then you have below and above, and I don't think that applies to me. So in my experience, I'm going to say it's false.
0: I'm willing to take that. I'm not going to give you a point for it, though, because there is quite a lot of research going into it, and there is evidence that it will continue decreasing until you're 60, 70. Whereas with women, ours is pretty steady and then completely goes. Huh. And then it completely goes. Whereas with men, it, it it kind of completely drops after your teens, and then has a kind of a regular rhythm of letting go. I'm not wow, that that's
1: that's really strange. Because if I think back to my teens, uh, well, I mean, I was I was quite a late bloomer, but uh, yeah, no, like that that does not. Um, <laughs> that's nowhere close to. To uh, what my experience is, but um, okay, I'll happily take that as a as a loss.
0: Well, you were a late bloomer because
1: um, I was so focused on my training that girls didn't really come into the equation. I was I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be a performer from the age of four. So I took my vocational training very seriously. I went to a state school from the age of twelve. I then went to performing arts school, studied dance and drama from the age of 16 right through to 19. And it was after then that, you know, I met the first girl that uh, I went with. And I wanted, I was always very much, I wanted to, um, I wanted to go to a good home. So I waited until I found somebody that I, you know, felt like I was in love with. And uh, yeah, but I was, I was just so focused on, on my training and being as good as I could possibly be. And I wanted to be top of the class and I wanted to learn more. And I just kind of, you know, socialising at college and things, was just wasn't, just wasn't a thing. So I never got into drinking drugs either. What, you know, the normal things that, you know, teenagers kind of experiment with and do just wasn't, uh, wasn't on my radar.
0: Beautiful. That's why you're such a, a man with such integrity, I would suggest on two and a half even though you've got great integrity this is your last question go
1: ahead
0: first lesbian kiss on british television was anna Friel's passionate embrace on brookside in the early 90s true okay it was the first pre-watershed lesbian kiss actually Uh. earlier on in 1974 this bbc drama girl which featured alison steadman and myra frances however anna did break your co-star or marcella did break the pre-watershed lesbian kiss amazing that
1: ah.
0: it kind of made her career
1: it did yeah and what a career she's had it was an historical for a historical moment for television
0: historical moment for television you've got two and a half out of five Nicholas but I've absolutely loved I don't I'm not even gonna say it. you've got you've got two and a half out of five Nicholas I think that's exceptional.
1: I'm i I'm happy with two and a half
0: out of five chat.
1: I'd have been happy with one I mean you know
0: but the chat it's the chat I give you five out of five for your chat which is why I was so desperate for you to come on the podcast so my first question do you think that gender stereotype? And so-called toxic masculinity lead public opinion on people, especially men who are childless.
1: Um, yeah, I do. I don't think it is. It's um, we can't compare it to to women. Uh, I think there's so much more pressure on women. Women, but there's pressure on men too. But men can't really talk about it because the moment. Um you know any man is brave enough within earshot of some women to talk about those things. they get shut down very quickly um and I find that quite quite damaging. I find it quite um disturbing that that's the case that there can't be open dialogue for men to talk about how they feel pressured to have children or by not having kids or um you know, male infertility, for instance. I think there's a lot of pressure for men to not talk about those things because of this toxic masculinity that, you know, men have to be a certain way and they should be strong and they can't have feelings. And it starts from when, you know, I I think it starts from when, you know, we're we're children and boys are encouraged to be brave and don't cry and don't be a big girl, don't be a sissy, Um, you know, boys don't cry. And then girls are comforted and hushed and encouraged to let it out. And I think that causes a lot of problems. So when we get older, no wonder there's a big emotional divide between men and women, because women have become in touch with their feelings because they've been encouraged from such a young age to explore them. Men, on the other hand, haven't. So men go into what they call his cave because he doesn't know how to deal with the things that he's feeling because they've been suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. Um and I think that's um that puts a lot of pressure on men. So, you know, when men um I, I, I speak to a lot of, of men who who don't have kids and I'm able to have conversations with them that they don't seem to be able to have anywhere else because they don't feel open and comfortable enough talking about it. And I think that's such a shame
0: within those conversations. Yeah, is the topic within that conversation how hard it is to be suppressed or your feelings around this topic to be suppressed, or are the conversations around whether so? For me, I'm child free, it wasn't a choice, however, I'm kind of aware that somewhere it must be a choice. But most of my conversations with my merry band of like-minded like aged women around children or not is is around whether or not we want to have them do you feel that people ask you that question
1: people do ask me that question yeah i mean i i don't have any kids um and people ask me that question quite a lot you know are you going to have any what's going on with you uh, do you want kids um and it's it's it doesn't happen so much anymore i think because all the people that feel they can ask have asked and have accepted my my answers so i I think it's kind of died off now but there was a time where you know people questioned my my marital status and my family status and why and you know do you not want to but Yeah. And then what they what they always end up saying is, oh, well, you're a man, you've got time, Mm -hmm. which I think is also quite. It's a big assumption that, um, you know, at any point, a man can literally just decide to have a family and. You know, his sperm count is high enough and, and there you go. And, you know, there's a lot of conclusive proof to suggest that men after the age of 42 have a lower sperm count. Um, And it becomes harder to have children. I know three couples who have had a child through IVF around about – and they're around around about my age. I mean, these children are, you know – uh, I think five, six, seven, something like that. Um, and they went through to, through IVF, not because of her, but because of him. Because after 42 or around about that age, um, your sperm starts to deplete. And if you haven't had kids before then, it becomes harder. And I think that's something to do with chemicals. There is some chemical that, your body is able to attach to once you've already had a child. So when you see these men having kids in their 70s, they've got grown-up children who are in their you know, 50s and 40s and things. But a man having a child for the very first time around that age is going to be very difficult. It's like putting a car in a, in a garage and leaving it there and then 50 years later trying to switch it on. And it's never, ever been switched on before. But if you have a car that you've switched on before and it then stays in the garage for a while, it's easier to start. Um,
0: That's so amazing. It shows clarity between conversations around female fertility and men's fertility because one of the reasons I was so excited to chat to you about this is that, Mm. my thinking before we initially connected over this subject a year or so Mm. I'm facing my biological clock ending and male mm-hmm. friends will never have to face that. And you have just shared with me something that is so enlightening that actually you have the same fear. You have the same pressure. You don't know. And, I, you know, you, you have no more knowledge that you would be able to make a child biologically post 42 than a woman post 42. We're all in the same boat.
1: We are. I mean, there's a, there is a, a far more definite stop for women. That's absolutely, you know, you can't take it, take away anything from that. And it's not about – I would never even begin to start comparing uh, the trials of men in that situation to the trials of women. And, and even through IVF, it's easier to correct in a man than it is in a woman to get what's needed to um, – Produce the sperm count that is viable for having a child. Absolutely, but that doesn't that doesn't take away the fact that I know men have fears around it. But men never talk about it. They never talk about it because the moment they open their mouths in that area of conversation at all whatsoever, they get shut down by women. And it's really um, and it's really sad to see that there isn't an open dialogue for men who are scared about their fertility or who worry about their fertility or who feel, you know, not manly enough because they've had to go through IVF to, because there's, because, you know, naturally you can't just have sex with your partner and it be okay. But because there's something wrong with their sperm that they then now need to go through tests and clinical um, procedures to be able to have a child. There's something very, um, what's the word?
0: Shaming. I mean, there's huge shame and stigma.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. But men men can't talk about it. Men never talk about it. They can't talk about it because women shut them down a lot of the time. And I think that's really quite sad that there isn't an open platform for men to actually just talk about their fears as well.
0: Mm. Fears about whether they can. Make a
1: fears about fears about whether they can um, their their feelings of shame because they can't they have to have it done biologically um, uh, medically um, you know in a lab um, their feeling of um, it it goes against your masculinity you feel less of a man because you haven't ha- you haven't been able to produce a child in the way that your brother has or your father has or your best friend has, you have, you've had to go to a clinic to have your sperm, you know, put in a cup and analysed because, you know, your swimmers aren't, aren't strong enough and there's not enough of them because you've left it too late or, you know, for whatever the reason. And there is shame in that.
0: Where, though, where does it come from, Nicholas? Where does this, if we play the tape backwards... Yeah. work out where this started in history... But to be a man, to have the ultimate masculinity, one must be able to do that. And that if you mm. can't, now friends, because uh, I've got friends, couples who mm-hmm. are pretty clear based on the woman's tests that it, the the problem with them procreating is not her, that yeah. the man, and he point blank refuses to go and of course that's painful for them but mostly I'm in deep pain for him
1: oh absolutely
0: so so deep, deep rooted frightened to go and get tested yeah. in case what's told back I mean I'm assuming I'm making assumption but I assume what happens is, is that he goes I just don't want to know where does it come from what is the shame for that for men what is it
1: just not being manly enough you know it's that it's It's like you know. I guess if you if you lose a fight, you know you're you're not a man enough. There are just so many things that are things that men should do, things that men have to do to prove they're a man. And if you can't do one of those things, then you know you're kind of teased, ridiculed, bullied, and you feel shame for it.
0: But the irony as well is that men need to be able to procreate in order to be a man, while at the same time There isn't as much pressure on men to have children. So I'm not saying it isn't there.
1: No, you're right. You're You're absolutely right.
0: The other thing around it, Nicholas, is this you touched on earlier, which I loved when you were talking about what happens to uh, little people in terms of how how they're taught and and raised and Mm -hmm. how to handle feelings. And I, I suspect it goes back to that.
1: I think it does. You know, I saw a woman on a, on a bus. One day, um, her son was crying. He, cleared, he wanted a hug. He wanted his mother. He was, um, you know, he just wanted some comfort. And all she did was try and hush him up, tell him to stop crying. You shouldn't be crying. You're a boy. Stop it. Stop crying. You're going to make him fool of yourself and all these kinds of things. And you could just see the look on this child's face. He just wanted some comfort. And to parallel that, having been on another bus at some other point, a little girl was, was crying and she got picked up immediately and cuddled and comforted. And I've seen it so many times. I'm not saying I've seen it every single time that way, but I've seen it more that way than the other way. Um and I think that's that does something to your psyche at such a at such a young age. So what you do is you you know, as a male in society, you tend not to um give in to your feelings. So if you're if you know you hurt yourself, you knock your knee on the dresser or something, rather than, you know, if it rather than cry, you hold it in because you you know, you don't want to feel like a sissy or you, you know, you, you have to be manly. You've got to, you know, you've got to hide the pain. You've got to hide the pain. You've got to hide the pain. And it's constant hiding of emotions. And that not only happens physically, but that happens, you know, emotionally as well. You know, you constantly have to hide how you feel because it shows in society's eyes, it shows a weakness that you don't want to be a part of. So you do everything you can to stay strong. But by doing that, what happens is you implode at some point internally. And this is why So I believe so many men lean towards having breakdowns and lead towards you know taking their own lives because there is no platform for them a lot of the time to express how they feel with honesty and truth because men don't want to be lumped into this part of being weak in society and so you don't know how to express yourselves there's a lot of feelings that you have and you don't know what they are because you've never been given the opportunity to explore them
0: it's interesting because i do think it's changing although i mentioned recently to a couple of friends who are teachers one in a secondary school and the other one at a university that i felt that the that generation um, x and Z. The, the, the young men seemed to me to be emotionally uh, better versed, that they had a wider range of ability to kind of talk and, and and connect their emotions. And both teachers, she said to me, it's just coming out in other ways. You know, that this gender-specific training that we have as children, which essentially teaches us attachment. We learn how to attach to human beings via this that teachers and parents give us, where they they put us into gender camps. Yeah. So we'll see what the future holds. I just wondered in terms of your experience with the, there's a a lot of activity at the moment after the loss of George Floyd and you and I have been talking about race and I know that you have been very vocal about your uh, stance that we need to stop talking about race and stop naming it race which I feel really inspired by. But I still do want to ask you whether or not you feel that there's a difference in society's attitudes towards men in the black communities who, who don't have children growing up in black communities versus white.
1: Um, well, just to clarify something, I don't want to stop talking about um, this thing called race. I want to talk about it more. Um, but, I want to stop calling it race because it doesn 't make any sense. We are all one race, we are the human race, and that has been medically scientifically it 's been proven. We are all one race so that foundation needs to come back into our way of thinking and into our um, way of understanding, so that we can then use that foundation to celebrate the differences of color and culture. Race was an ideology racism was an ideology that was designed to justify slavery. The maltreatment of another group of people, were they a different race, would be easier to mentally overcome than if you were treating people who were the same as you. So it was um, an ideology that was designed to separate and make people different and other, which actually worked. It was an ideology that became reality but there is nothing real about it because there's no truth in the fact that we are separate races so if we continue to call it racism and use the word race in that context we are adding to the problem that we are trying to get rid of we are perpetuating an ideology that is just that there is no truth in an ideology it's an idea that was um that is, you know, designed for its own gains and means. We need to stop calling it racism. We need to stop thinking of each other as different races. And we need to find new terminology in our language. Language is very, very important. And um, I do whatever I can to stop using that word. And it's hard because it's so ingrained in my um, vocabulary and my understanding in how I construct a sentence when I'm talking about that subject, that it's very difficult to find the right alternative. What's going on right now in the world currently is anti-blackness. That's what happened with George Floyd's murder. That wasn't this blanket term called racism, which is, you know, extreme color prejudice. No, that's, it's not happening to any other community. It's just happening to black people in America. Um, now there is an argument uh, that it's not just happening to black people in America, so let me, let me clarify that. Yes, white people are being killed by police too. Yes, um, Latinos are being killed by police too. And, and in sometimes greater numbers. Here's the difference. Innocent, unarmed black people are being killed regularly. That's not happening to other communities by the police. That's where the problem lies. Going back to your question about um, black men versus white men in society. um, No, I don't believe that there's a a big difference if if you're black and you don't have kids and there's more pressure. I think um, it's I don't think it's a a black problem. I think it's a a man problem. I don't think it's specific to uh, black men.
0: It's a gender problem.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Interestingly, what you've just been talking about in terms of anti-blackness and reclaiming the right language around our uh, individual, I'm going to say races again. Am I allowed? Yeah,
1: well, you can, the thing is, you can, everyone knows what you mean by it, but it's wrong. I'm not the part of the black race and you're not part of the white race. We are all part of the human race. There is no such thing as separate races so we're using this terminology and we're using the language but it's there's no truth in it so what we're doing is we're just continuing to perpetuate a lie when we say you know interracial relationships there's no such thing because we are all one race so how can you have interracial relations when there is only one race that you can have relations with do you see what i mean there's no there's no truth in that in that terminology
0: one of the things that came up for me when you were sharing where you're at with this language is that you're fighting the same fight as people within the gender fluid communities who are asking for different pronouns for themselves it's it's a different mm-hmm. but really interestingly it is as you touched on at the beginning of this podcast it is where we're at in society which is that there's a movement happening of change where rather than being blocked into divisive, that's who you are, you're, you're this body shape, you're this gender, you're this race, you're this colour, you know, it's all being broken down. The walls are being broken down.
1: Yeah, it's about getting rid of labels, because I think labels are damaging. So, you know, you're a, you're a writer, are you not, Mika? I'm a director. I am. Okay. But um, you're considered within the entertainment community, a female writer and a female director. Whereas your male counterparts are just writers and just directors. There is no gender before their job title. I'm considered a black actor as opposed to my white counterparts who are just considered actor. In an age of equality, there's nothing equal about putting the color of my skin before my job title. Now, again, these labels are part of a systemic structure that was designed during colonialism and slavery to elevate one group and one group only. That was rich, straight, white men. Not women, not the poor, not blacks or anybody else, which is why all of those communities are fighting for some kind of equality, some kind of place and voice in a society that is far too loud in the rich, straight, white men area. Mm. Um, And it's not that... And I think that the message is sometimes quite um, distorted because I believe that what they hear is, we want to get rid of rich, straight, white men because we want to take your place. And that's so not true. Mm. In fact, we don't want to get rid of you at all because you've got a lot more... um, you've had a, a stronghold over this thing a lot longer than we have. And, you know, we don't want to do what you did to everybody else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you created a world where it was unequal. We actually want to create a world that's equal. So we don't want you to go anywhere. We just want to stand shoulder to shoulder with you in equal numbers and move forward that way and do what do now what should have been done right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think anyone's out for revenge or to you know, financially destable or, you know, it's it's funny, they talk about, I've heard this rhetoric about um, uh, people not wanting to give away power. I don't want to give away any power of my company or power in society because, and you hear white supremacists say this quite a lot, you know, um, we're we're losing our power. When you look at nature, nature will quite clearly show you that there's power in sharing. Mm-hmm. and as human beings I think we've disconnected so much from the natural world that we think we're above it and we forget how the natural world works so we don't work with it anymore we've become you know human societies as opposed to you know global and natural societies mm-hmm. we've come up with all these constructs of 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 how we socialize and how we interact and we're not looking back to nature enough. We're really not. If a man holds on to his sperm, let's say, and he doesn't share it, he doesn't give it out, nothing grows. There's no power in that. Whereas if, you know, he procreates, he shares that seed that's in him, you know, it, it gives life. And so the man that doesn't have children, for instance, and the man that has an abundance of family, who's more powerful?
0: Mm.
1: so when you share you become more powerful because that feeds so much in your life when you hold on to things you had, you had a like if you had like a million pounds mm. and you put it under your bed what happens to that million pounds because it gathers dust
0: i'd just like to say yes please to that
1: yeah yes please oh. to a million pounds absolutely oh
0: yes please okay <laughs> See, under my bed unlikely but my knickers are under yeah
1: my bed. okay we'll shove it under your knickers under <laughs> the bed yeah, yeah.
0: um it gathers,
1: dust. It, gathers, it gathers dust but if you you know invest that money in a bank or in businesses that money grows yeah. and that's how nature works yeah and we've come so against that so this notion of um you know white people or white men giving away power if they let a black person in the board of executives is, is ridiculous. The amount that they could learn from women or from the LGBT community or from black people or from you know, somebody from some other part of the world that doesn't look like them. Mm. The riches that can be found in differences and how that one idea from someone else's culture could add to that business and make it and expand it is, is amazing. But if you don't give it that chance, then you're losing out on something. There's no power in that. Mm. So there is power in sharing. There is power in giving away mm. because you get so much back. Mm. But it's, it's something I hear, You know, like I said, white supremacists and, and people who are scared of losing um, what they call a sense of themselves in society because they're so scared of becoming the minority. Mm. and scared of not having a voice and so they have these very bigoted xenophobic and anti-black rhetorics Mm. you know I, I, I feel for them because they are missing out on so many beautiful things and so many experiences that could allow growth and change in the best possible ways
0: I mean, that is just absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that and reminding us of that, Nicholas, because life gets fast. And and and, and even those of us that know that, that that is the way that to be a worker among workers and to have the humility to want the whole of the human race to grow at every level of our being, uh, we can forget it. We can forget it because we get busy and busy leads to greed, as far as I'm concerned. You did just say mm-hmm. something that really touched me you said about a a man being a father and and the 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 growth that can happen when when a man has a family and that he's feeding back and you you compared it to a man who hasn't and at, at the moment you don't have children as you said and you've also touched on your mental health and I wondered whether or not you how you're feeling around not having children today at the moment where you're at with it and also if you feel it has a negative effect on your mental health?
1: Um, How do I feel? First question, how do I feel about not having kids today? It fluctuates. I think as I get older, um, it becomes more important to me. Um, But I'm working so much now that um, I don't know where I, you know, I would want to be a very hands-on father. And I want to be there a lot, but I'm working so much now. It's unbelievable. I wonder if I did have a child, children in my life, whether I would be there enough for them. I, I feel OK with where I'm at for now. But like I said, sometimes it fluctuates. Some days I feel, you know, I'm having conversations with a lot of my male friends who have children. I mean, and all of them have children. Mm-hmm. and there's parts of the conversation that I can't be involved in because I don't really understand fully what they're talking about. So I am you know, I don't feel like I have a place to put forward an opinion or to say, oh, yeah, my gosh, I understand that, when they're all identifying with certain things because they're in a group that I'm not a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that feels quite, uh, you can feel quite sad sometimes about it.
0: I think it's very isolating, isn't it? I, I feel isolated. That's exactly what it is, yes. And it's yeah, not. The, you can
1: feel isolated about it.
0: And it's not the same kind of isolation that we talked about earlier, where it's a choice to have time to yourself. I find that I don't get invited to things. I think that there's this, you know, I think once people couple up and then have kids, they think yes. about their single friends and inviting them, including them. So then you end up orienting towards people who also don't have children. And and I think that then your your worldview gets shaped by that. And again, coming back to what you said about growth, working better in sharing, you know, if only it was more tribal, if only we were all kind of mixing up a bit more, I I, I think that the world would be a healthier place.
1: Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I think it would be a far healthier place. And I think that, um, you know, we need communities again. And I think that was just, that was one of the things that was so wonderful about lockdown during covid is that there was a sense of community again for the first time in a very very long time which I think a lot of people found you know neighbors were helping neighbors Um, family were helping family more you know people were staying in touch more there was a a real sense of what we need as human beings and as a society as opposed to what we want and we just fell back into it and really enjoyed it and I think, you know, we have far too many distractions. There are far too many things going on. And we do busy ourselves with far too many things to focus on our needs because a lot of other things get in the way.
0: Yeah, it's just like habitual as well. Like even as, as I say, yeah. an amazing human being that doesn't want to live like that. It can just happen without you even realising. And then and you and I both quite often just reset, you know, just like really
1: yeah,
0: back. particularly yeah, totally. For those of us that have struggled uh, with depression and do struggle with depression, it, it's so important. Nicholas, I met you, I would say, almost 10 years ago, but significantly, we were at a MIND event. It was a, a, an event celebrating films and TV shows, work within the creative industries that had championed issues around mental health. Yes. And I remember saying to you, why aren't there any other people in the industry here? Where are they all? And you said, no one will talk about it. And I think that was probably about five or six years ago. And we are looking yeah. at a very, very, very different landscape today. And you, Thankfully. you were one of, because to be, I would suggest, to be a man, to be a black mm. man and to be an actor with the amount of fear that within the industry Actors had around whether or not they would still work if they admitted that they had challenges with their mental health because of insurance. I just think that it was phenomenal that you were brave enough to speak her out about it.
1: I felt I had to. I had spent so many years, Mika, not talking. Or should I say, no, let me, let me correct that. I spent so many years talking, but not truly and honestly communicating. Um, and that led to me having a breakdown 14 years ago because there was stuff, stuff going on inside, um, depression, PTSD, um, low self-esteem, um, all kinds of things that, um, my life was triggering And I wasn't able to discuss it, wasn't able to talk about it, didn't really know what was going on. I remember saying to a friend of mine in my um, mid-twenties, I can feel that there is something wrong and I need to talk to somebody about it. And I never spoke to anybody about it. Jump, um, you know, forward maybe 10 years and... I am in a position where I, 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 can't eat and I can't eat enough. I can't sleep. I can't sleep enough. I can't speak. I don't speak at all. I mean, I, I can't speak enough. Um, I can't cry. I can't stop crying and I am completely lost. And the whole of my being felt like it had been disconnected from the whole of the universe. And I was completely on my own. Um, suicidal thoughts were, uh, uh, not only a daily thing, they were an, hourly thing they were a, uh, you know minute by minute second by second thing um, and I kept going to sleep at night asking the universe not to wake me up the next morning because I couldn't deal with the cloud of sadness that had imbued my body so much that I no longer wanted to be here Luckily, I had um, a family member of mine who uh, was wonderful and gifted me therapy. I had two and a half years worth of psychotherapy and it saved my life. It allowed me to find the tools to manage what was going on with me and to understand it and to accept it and know the root of it, where it came from and why it came that way and all these kinds of things. And so after 20 years of psychotherapy, it then took me another four years to work out how to use the tools to help manage it in my life. And then it took another four years to put that into practice. And I am so glad now that I went through all of that because my life is manageable i'm really happy i still have the odd day and you know i still have troubles in my life that cause me hurt and pain and so on and so forth and i can rationalize it and i can think about it but i also have to be in a place where i go look i have to honor how it is that i feel i can't ignore how i'm feeling so i have to deal with it as opposed to shove it to the back of my mind not deal with it and have it blow up at some point later on Mm -hmm. um but I felt that I had to um, speak about it regardless of any consequences. And if people were deciding they didn't want to work with me, then um, that was on them. If people felt that um, they couldn't trust me or they, they thought I was unpredictable, or that was on them. And I did lose a few friends who couldn't deal with it at the time. And that was sad, but I understand it. And I just had to forgive and, and, and move on from those people um the industry has been very kind to me in the sense that they haven't um it hasn't gotten in the way at all whatsoever in fact I think it made me a better actor because it allowed me to find layers and depths to the characters that I was playing that I don't feel I had before I mean you know you know as, as actors we are we're some we're, we're kind of psychologists and therapists anyway, because we have to in some way shape or form, no disrespect to the therapists out there, um, but in some way shape or form because we have to analyze our characters and we have to make choices and decisions based on the stories that we're telling, mm-hmm. and those nuances are ones that are psychologically based, and um, it allows us to tap into um, the feelings of ourselves just being the vessel for those characters to be able to tell those stories. Because, you know, if you think about, you know, any time you see an actor or or, or you're watching a film or a piece of theatre and you are emotionally so moved to tears or to laughter or to sadness by what's being done by the performances, imagine what's going on within the actor to be able to make you feel that. Mm. Um, and that doesn't come from anywhere surface. It comes from somewhere very, very, very deep. Um, so it allowed me to open act- so much more of those things as an actor. It was, um, yeah. Access them. Yeah, absolutely. I would su- Absolutely.
0: I would suggest, Nicholas Pinnock, that what you did was you set yourself free. And while you may not free every day, I would suggest that today you are a free man.
1: I would quite definitely agree with that <laughs> it, it did and you know part of me wanting to talk about it and be open about it is to hopefully help other people find freedom mm. because I think it's so important it's so important and I'll continue talking about it and I'll continue sharing stories about it and um, regardless of the consequences because I think what's you know if I if there are consequences for me as an individual. That end up helping lots of other people, I quite happily take it.
0: What are the, aside from sharing, what are the other three things that are key in your life today, Nicholas, to keep yourself mentally balanced? And if you go into an episode of depression, mm-hmm. to keep yourself buoyant enough?
1: Um, so, exercise find your exercise i mean i i um i do a bit of pilates i do a bit of yoga i do fitness training um like going for walks dancing yeah i'm gonna try and find um uh a ballet class here, COVID-dependent, obviously. Um, I was doing that while I was in LA when I was working there last time. We'd go and I'd have a ballet class two or three times a week, and that was wonderful. It really, really released all the chemicals I need to stave off, you know, a few of the bad moods and the, the black dog, as it were, that um, depression can bring with it sometimes. Um, food, you know, really have to, whenever I, I can feel a dip or I wake up in those mornings when I just don't want to get out of bed, um, I know it's important for me to actually stop ordering anything from Deliveroo and um, start cooking again, you know, regularly. And even if I am ordering food out, making sure that it's, you know, healthy, nutritious food that's going to feed my my the chemicals in my brain and feed my mood um, You know, no high salt, no high sugar content things because they are um, very damaging. I gave up sugar five years ago, refined sugar, which has, you know, been an absolute blessing for me. Um, And music. Music, I listen to music. I always, again, I always know when I dip, if I just turn on some music or I play music. um, I don't play it as often as I should do, but I play the guitar sometimes and I have... uh, Uh, a few sets of congas uh percussion drums that i that i play you know just to lose myself for half an hour or two hours um you know it just really makes all the difference
0: oh beautiful exercise food and music shakespeare couldn't have said it better nicholas and i'm really (laughs) I'm, i'm really 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 honored to have you grow which you have since I've known you, not least for the fact that I think about five years when I finished a packet of haribo, a big packet of haribo within about two seconds flat. <laughs> <laughs> <You did. laughs> which is a good thing for no human being to be doing to their body.
1: No, shouldn't do it, shouldn't do it, shouldn't do it. it tastes so good though. Mm-hmm.
0: Nicholas, it has been a pleasure talking to you. So insightful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for correcting us. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for teaching me and being such an amazing human being.
1: Thank you for having me on. Um, It's been wonderful actually talking and um, sharing thoughts and ideas with you. Thank you.
0: This has been The Happy Vagina. That was the amazing Nicholas Pinnock. I'm Mika Simmons. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.